Hello and welcome to Fertility Springboard, the podcast series brought to you by Fertility Help Hub. I'm Eloise, founder of Fertility Help Hub, and over the series I will be bringing you conversations with some of the most influential and inspiring professionals and experts around the world to arm you with useful and empowering thoughts and resources to ease your fertility journey. And don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to make sure you don't miss out on anything. It's packed full of inspiring interviews, resources, discounts and offers, competitions and real life stories. Welcome. Today I am speaking with Emma Bell, who is from the UK but based in Dubai. And she is a mentor for mental health, bipolar and sexual trauma healing. Hi Emma, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Not bad. It's raining here. It's probably much, much nicer weather where you are in Dubai. It's quite well, it's nice, but touching on, you know, 48 degrees. So it's nice, ah. but we're still inside. We're inside. Okay, okay. <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine. Um, so we're going to be talking um, today about your personal diagnosis um, and your mentorship program and how you help people. Uh, and also talking about your own personal fertility journey. And you are currently in the two-week wait after IUI. So give yourself um, an introduction to everybody. And and we'll go from there. Sure. Um, I'm Emma. I'm 39. I'm originally from Brighton and I spent four years living in Switzerland prior to living in Dubai and I've spent the last two years living in Dubai. Um, I got diagnosed with bipolar 10 years ago but the truth is I was probably, well I know I was undiagnosed from about the age of 15 really onwards so I had all of the symptoms and the problems that it can bring into your life and I didn't get diagnosed until I was 29 at which point everything just made sense and all of my closest people around me just went of course of course you are (laughs) can you tell us a bit about what those symptoms are Mm, uh, so it's the extreme highs and the extreme lows Um, it's not how it can be portrayed where somebody's just having a bad day and one minute they're happy and one minute they're sad and then you know there's that flippant comment of oh are you bipolar it's not that it's um it's more intense and more prolonged than that so the periods of low are extended and the periods of high are extended um, and they are quite extreme so you've got the low part which is depression which I think nowadays thankfully a lot of people are quite familiar with which is um, good progress in the mental health front um, where people have feelings of hopelessness helplessness um, at its very worst they can become suicidal um, which I am familiar with and have felt and have um, been suicidal and actively suicidal just leading up to my diagnosis Um, and then you move into the hypermanic phase which can look like this is why it can go missed undiagnosed sorry for so long and misdiagnosed actually because hypermania at the beginning can look like the person is super productive bags of energy doesn't need a lot of sleep can get loads of stuff done that one person could probably hold down three full-time jobs and absolutely ace it um 
And it really only becomes a problem when it starts to become a little bit more elevated than that and they become irritable and impatient and the world suddenly gets too slow for them everybody's too slow I can remember feeling like it's very often and I still do from time to time especially with my partner <laughs> so so you know it, your thoughts become like rapid fire and you can think and act so quickly now that doesn't always mean that it, it's good but to you, the world is too slow and why can't everyone keep up? So it builds into frustration, irritability, anger, um, confrontation. It can lead you to being overtly, um, what's the word? <sighs> Sexual and flirtatious in your language, um, crass. It can then also lead to, you know, exorbitant spending, um risky decisions not thought out decisions and then as it escalates more and more it heads towards full mania which is um the diagnosis bipolar one so when you've got somebody who is diagnosed with bipolar two they range from depression to hypermania if you have the diagnosis of bipolar one it means that you have experienced um full-blown mania just once it only has to be once for you to have that diagnosis um in your life and full mania can look like um losing touch with reality losing complete perspective not having awareness not having insight full-blown psychosis having um you know grandiose ideas suddenly believing that you're someone quite holy um paranoia delusions voices hallucinations all of those types of things and it's different for everybody um so that's kind of the range it's a very complex um diagnosis because it affects everyone differently but that is the range and the spectrum if you like Gosh, it's so involved, isn't it? I mean, like you said, I'm sure that so many people hear of it and think, as you said, it's it's highs and lows and don't get the full scale and um, I guess how serious it can be and mm -hmm. how it can lead you to, as you said, you know, suicidal thoughts or actively mm -hmm. doing something um, like that. So to have help and support must be, and also to have a diagnosis, must mm -hmm. be such a relief um mm. so tell tell us more about your mentorship and also i guess your your personal um sexual trauma and how you help other people heal who have been there too basically I, i've spent um a lot of my life in in the corporate kind of um, managerial world but through my own personal experiences it has led me to a place where now i am that three steps ahead person for somebody who is suffering and struggling with bipolar um, or is healing and trying to rebalance their life after sexual trauma. So I help predominantly women in both of those arenas and I mentor them through making the right choices for themselves and finding stability and building a toolkit a you know to help build their resilience in their healing 
so it's not avoidance it's not um pretending it has you know everything's rosy that's not what this is about it's about getting real with the reality of our our state and where the diagnosis of bipolar has left us and what we need to do and to be empowered and taking charge of our mental health and not just being at the whims of the doctors and just accepting medication and accepting that that's your lot and that's all you can do on one side and in terms of sexual trauma building a resilient toolkit to help you navigate through trauma healing because it is complex and there are so many different modalities that we can go down but sometimes what we're not given is the day-to-day tools for self-management and that's what I give and share with my mentorship groups amazing so um I mean we've sort of touched on this slightly but um you have suffered from this from sexual trauma yourself haven't you um Mm -hmm. and so can you tell us a little bit more about um how you've rebuilt your life and how it's led you to do what you're doing now Mm. um yeah I mean for me my sexual betrayal and the boundaries being crossed was at 17 years old with my uncle is how it started and I was sexually assaulted by him but because I was a young runaway essentially I ran away from home at 15 and I was the troubled child if you like and he was an upstanding citizen of the community um unfortunately I was not not a credible witness but my my character was brought into question because I was the, the the delinquent child, you know, I was not stable. I was all of these things. And he was a, you know, stable, upstanding businessman and well thought of and everyone loved him. And it just, you know, how could he possibly do something like that? So unfortunately that kind of marred the court case that took place. And after that, it sort of sent me reeling because in the two years leading up to the court case, I was um, attacked by people that he knew that were trying to protect him because they thought that I had just made it up. So I had a someone bite a chunk out the back of my arm. I got oh beaten up in the street. Um, I had someone um, try and run me over. Oh. And I, this all just led me to such a chaotic place and don't get me wrong I was already in a chaotic place which I believe is what left me vulnerable to the sexual assault happening in the first place because I was estranged from my family and I kind of adopted him as my father figure that you know the father figure I was kind of yearning to have but never got so I thought I'd found it in in my uncle um so it was through being in the vulnerable position that that kind of happened, which I've, as I've got older, I've since learned is common that these things do happen when people are vulnerable. And that just sent me down a really wrong path. And I ended up in really bad circles in really unsafe situations. And that led me to being very violently raped when I was about 19 years old. And consequently I then ended up in a, domestic abuse relationship for two years so it was all a chaotic time from the age of 15 leaving home to the age of about 21 really is when it probably all kind of stopped and I just took a different turn and my life started to turn around. Did you win the court case in the end? 
unfortunately not no because um I think the Emma that was showing up to court at that time I can see why a jury would have doubt about me I now if Emma right now turned up to that courtroom it would be a different story um but at the time I was chaotic and I was completely unstable but what I have also learned through learning more and meeting other people that have been in my position is that's not uncommon that victims of sexual violence and sexual assault are in chaotic places and that leads them to be vulnerable to these things happening to them sadly and it's just the sad reality of it so do you think that there do you think there's any link between um your experiences and the fact that you have bipolar and hadn't been diagnosed with it not really because i think the symptoms for me were presenting themselves from the age of 15 um and i got misdiagnosed at the age of 16 with depression because the problem with bipolar is sometimes you only present to a doctor when you're very very low and you can't cope with life but when you're hypermanic it feels like you're doing well so people don't tend to present to the doctors when they're hypermanic because it can just be seen as you're really efficient dynamic and acing it so this can be a really common reason why it goes undiagnosed for such a long time and misdiagnosed makes complete sense wow Mm. and so how have you rebuilt your life since then obviously um you are a different person now and i'm sure it didn't happen overnight Um, no (laughs) and where has that led to tell us a bit more about where you are now and what's going Mm. on in terms of um trying for a baby Mm. so i mean the, the truth is i ran from everything that happened to me for a really long time and I passed it off as healthier and healthier coping mechanisms so from the age of sort of 19 to 25 I got lost in you know a a lifestyle of too much partying and abusing my body in that way um, which I now recognise was just escaping how I felt and then that morphed into being a workaholic and I went into sort of corporate world and got managerial jobs and I passed off my workaholic as just working really hard and being successful but the truth was it was complete avoidance of everything that I needed to deal with Um, and then it went into being like an exerciseaholic so I just kind of I just morphed from one (laughs) behavior to another but it was actually all avoidant behavior Um, and it But on the outside, it looked good because I was no longer chaotic. I was working hard. I was in the gym six times a week. So to the outside eye, you know, I'm really successful now. But the truth is I was running and I was running so hard from sitting still because the thought of sitting still was absolutely terrifying. So I had to fill every area of my life to avoid feeling. Um, I'm sure people can resonate with that feeling. (laughs) Like, even if you look back in hindsight and think, oh, yeah, like listening to some of the stuff you're saying, I can see areas of my life where I have been similar in in those kinds of feelings of, you know, it's not just about success, is it? It's like trying to manage everything and being on top of everything and having this front that you're on top of everything all the time. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting. Oh yeah, it, exhausting is exactly the right word. It is exhausting, and it's only 
when I stopped and I really stopped that I started to really heal and feel and heal and feel and it comes in waves and it's come in tranches if you like it's not like an overnight thing you know I'll take myself to a therapist and bang I'm fixed it's layers peeling back those layers one by one and you do a bit of peeling back and and then you need a bit of rest time from recovery work as well um it's not good to just be in recovery mode all of the time sometimes you do need a rest from recovery work and you need to just be um and then something will trigger you and that's an that's another indicator for something else that you need to just kind of lift up and go what's in here then (laughs) and it's just that it's you know and then all of a sudden something or you'll meet someone and they will bring up an emotion in you and you have to really sit there and think what is this trying to tell me because it's it's nothing about them whatever this is is about me so then you have to think oh christ i've got to lift up another one <laughs> so then you lift it up and you think oh what's under here <laughs> oh wow but do you see what i mean but it yes is, it's Definitely. good because you start to really sift and work through it and get real with yourself and for me that's where that's where the really good stuff's come from. Absolutely. And um, where are you? Well, we know where you are with um, being in the two-week wait. Um, yeah. But could you just go back a bit and tell us what's been happening on the fertility side of things um, since I presume you met your, your partner? Yeah, so we've been together seven and a bit years. And he is eight years younger than me. So when I met him... Um, we knew that obviously children weren't going to happen straight away and to be honest I was still running hard so I didn't have time for children didn't have time for periods didn't have time for anything um, apart from working and gymming (laughs) and I was on the Morena coil so I was on the Morena coil from the age of 19 or 20 right through to 39 so I had one in one out one in one out one in one out so I basically didn't have a period for the best part of 20 years and I had my coil taken out last August and I was very lucky I had a period within two weeks and was able to have all of my tests now the reason that I had all of my tests straight away is this four years ago so we only need to hop back Four years ago, when we were living in Switzerland, I thought I might go and get some eggs frozen. So I went to a fertility clinic, not thinking for one minute I would have anything wrong with my fertility. But what made you decide to do egg freezing at that point? Um, Because it sounds like you were in a relationship at the time. Um, And what were you, uh, 35 at the time or 34 at the time? I would have been 35. So did you think that you just weren't in a place to have a child at that moment if you both yeah. wanted one? That wasn't the right time for us. So we just weren't in the right space to have children at that time. Um, and I thought, right, okay, let's, I, maybe I'll go and look at getting some eggs frozen then. And because I didn't have a big desire to have children at that time, I kind of hopped in really naively, <laughs> hop, skip through the clinic door, you know, get some eggs frozen, please. And um, they did some tests and they said to me that my... AMH level was very low I didn't even understand what that was really and that when the time came to having children I would probably most definitely need some help and if I wanted to freeze some eggs that I would probably have to go through at least three rounds to get 
nine or so eggs because they only expected to get two to three eggs per round for egg freezing. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't really understand what they were saying to me at the time. And because I wasn't actively trying for children, I wasn't devastated by the news because I suppose I didn't have that yearning to be a mother at that time. Um, so although I was like, oh, God, that's not great, you know, to hear that when I want to have children, it might be difficult. I also didn't understand the enormity of what they were saying to me. So I didn't get any eggs frozen at the time and just thought when it's my time, it will see what happens. What's meant to be is meant to be. Fast forward four years, take my coil out. My AMH has obviously dropped lower. And um, we, but it's a blessing, I think, that thing that happened to me four years ago because I had my coil taken out. They told me that I might not have a period for one or two months. I was very lucky I had a period straight away. And I went straight into all the tests. So I just said, give me every single test, all of it. So to check for fibroids, blockages, all of that. So I had that done. I had all my blood tests done, had all the scans. And we knew exactly what we were dealing with. And my only issue, if you like, was my low AMH level, which at the time last year was 07 so we then she said you need to you know give yourself at least three months to see how your body regulates after coming off of um, contraception and all of those things so we waited three months and then in the January we did our first ovulation induction and again very naively <laughs> just hopped into the process and got pregnant so I was like, so really, I've been really uh, naive to this whole process because I just thought, well, this is just easy breezy. <laughs> um, I don't understand why people were telling me it was so difficult. <laughs> and yeah. then, um, and then, of course, I would think I was three weeks or something from conceiving. So three weeks from conception, five weeks on the actual kind of pregnancy scale, if you like, and that pregnancy didn't continue. And that, for me, I think, is when the reality of this whole process kind of dawned on me and what what emotionally that would mean to me and how this journey might start to kind of look for us, I guess. So do you feel like, do you have any regret about not freezing your eggs um, in your mid-30s? Um, no. Weirdly, right now, as I sit here today, my honest answer is no. Um, and I think maybe that is because of how I how I view life in general. And that could be a product of some of the trauma that I've been through. For me to place my energy in that space doesn't help me now. You know, I have to place my energy in a space that helps me today. And to waste my energy in any other area it's okay to feel sad and you know I have grieved in this fertility process like in a way that I really didn't think I would and I really have um but to have the regret I definitely don't have um have I had grief yes I have and you mentioned that when you were looking at egg freezing you you thought obviously about having children but it wasn't at that stage like a burning desire do you feel like because time has gone on like what's changed for you now to feel 
that you you very very much want to be um, a mother do you think it's because it's now more of a challenge it's like um, the thought of actually not being given the opportunity that you thought was a choice of yours yeah so the truth is I just didn't have the desire at that time. I've always known I wanted to be a mum and have a family but go back four years I just didn't have the desire to be a mother right there and then and one of my biggest motivations in life for parenting and this is probably a product of the upbringing that I had and having a broken family and then a broken step family and all of the other things that went on with it with male figures in my life was that until myself and my partner were totally in a place where we were absolutely engaged and ready to be parents I simply wasn't even wasn't even on my radar to go down that route because for me going into parenthood having two fully engaged parents fully desiring parents and emotionally I know you can never be ready but emotionally and intentionally walking into that space ready to change into being parents not ready to be parents but ready to embrace the change I was it simply wasn't even going to be an option on the table for me so for us it was important that that was all feeling right for both of us and it's we got to that space you know at the end of last year middle of last year end of last year and we decided that we would get married but you know covid put a stop to that but we decided that we would get married and um and that we were ready to be you know change our life and and move into a family dynamic and and that and that's really as simple as it is but then it's funny now that we've decided that we are ready that's where i suppose the news of my fertility or you know uh, reduced fertility is now having the emotional impact and that's i suppose is the bit that i'm now feeling on an emotional level that i just simply didn't feel before mm, i totally totally understand and um, the process so far has been IUIs, is that right? So we did one ovulation induction, which we fell pregnant, then the pregnancy didn't continue. Then we did another ovulation induction, which didn't work. And then another ovulation induction, which didn't work. All of those ovulation inductions were done with Clomid, FSH injections, trigger release, timed intercourse. Then we moved on to IUI. And we again had um, medication, FSH injections and um, trigger release and then the insemination. That didn't work. And then we moved clinics and the doctor said we're going to do one more IUI because in her opinion, she would have done the process slightly differently. And if this IUI, which we're currently in, doesn't work, then we will move to IVF. So this um, IUI has been done using Femera, which I haven't had before, FSH injections, trigger release, and then the insemination, and then the progesterone vaginal gels. And now we're in the two-week wait. Wow, everything, everything crossed for you. And so what, what do you think helps you and, and who supports you? Tell us a bit about the good and the bad days that no doubt everyone has felt listening. 
Um, in terms of fertility, um, I actually found a really great uh, group on Facebook, actually, um, called Parental Hope, I think it's called. Um, I've actually found a lot of support in that space, which has been really nice. And a few ladies are in their two-week wait, so I've kind of connected with them. I've connected with a lot of people in, on Instagram, including yourself. I just had no idea there was such a community out there of people okay. all connecting over the internet. <laughs> Um, you can come and join Fertility Squad, uh, my new yeah. app, because there are so many people at similar stages talking about it and what helps them and just, yeah, yeah. as you said, mentorship and talking about the highs and the lows and just knowing that other people out there are feeling the same things. Yeah, please. And, and uh, yeah, and just, you know, I just had no idea that there was such an amazing community of people on the internet who are all in this kind of fertility journey and I suppose it's not until you get in it that you realize just how many people are in it so since opening up about it on my social media I've been really overwhelmed with how many people who on the face of it I mean social media is terrible for this isn't it but on the face of it they've got two three children you know everything looks rosy well, these are, and you would never have thought that they've gone through this trauma and heartache and turmoil to get to being a family with children. And since opening up about it, I've had so many come to me and say, we had IVF and we did this and we had X amount of failed this. And, and it's just interesting that when you open up and you, re- you realise how many other people have walked the journey that you're now starting to walk. And it's, I've just been met with nothing but love and kindness and I'm just really grateful. Amazing. Amazing. And so what would your, uh, just to finish, what would your sort of takeaway advice or thought be? For fertility? Yeah. And, and I guess general mental health and wellbeing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, the, the best piece of advice I could give anybody, and I have to say this fertility journey has tested my mental health. Um, is to feel and to get in touch with your feelings and to find a way to connect with how you really feel and don't avoid how you feel um, because in avoiding how you feel we, we store it you store it all in your body and you can pretend you're okay but your body will know different so you can pretend all you want that you're okay but you store it inside and it might not come out in a way that you recognize as holding on to emotions. Um, but I promise you, it doesn't just disappear. So processing how we feel is just so important and creating yourself a safe way to do that is absolutely essential. Um, especially if you're moving from round to round, what you don't want to do is carry the last round with you, all the, you know, feel it grieve for it in that moment sob wail if you have to do whatever it takes none of it's wrong everything's okay as long as you're feeling what you feel and letting it move through you and out of you rather than storing it I think that's great advice thank you Emma and thank you so much for your honesty and listen everything cross for you know test day and and the future and it's been great to you today thank you so much 